As the Anglo-American invasion force started to push further into France after successfully landing on D-Day, June 6, 1944, in Normandy, did you know that German military leaders tried to kill Hitler with a bomb in a briefcase to bring about a surrender? Hello, everybody. This is Peyton Clyden, host of the Major Battles of World War II, a podcast, bringing you the end of the conflict with the defeat of Germany, Italy, and Japan in mid-1945. In the perfect position to strike at strike at the heart of the Axis powers in both Europe and the Pacific by June 1944, American, British, and Soviet troops worked together to launch coordinated attacks that limited the ability of Germany and Japan especially to fight strong delaying battles. The Allies had an overwhelming number of troops set against Germany and Japan, easily having the ability to push aggressively and hard against scrambling defenders who lacked the manpower and weaponry to succeed. As a result, the populace of these Axis nations became hopeless of what was coming to them, in Germany's case, wanting to have the Anglo-American force liberate them rather than the Soviets. The end game is coming, and it will change the direction that the world is heading into for good. Following their success of landing 180,000 troops in Normandy by the end of the first few days of fighting within France, the Anglo-American force was ready to break out of their beachheads and march towards Germany and the end of the European War. From the opening day of Operation Overlord, the introduction of paratroopers behind enemy lines saved the amphibious force a lot of time and not having to secure the flanks of the beaches immediately, allowing them to force their way through most regional German defenses. The U.S. First Army pushed west to the ports of Cherbourg and St. Lo on the northern Channel coast and their attempts to secure vital ports to offload more supplies to support them. Without this extra, more pronounced flow of supplies, The Anglo-American force wouldn't have the resources they need to pursue and push their way against strong elements of the German 7th Army and Panzer Group West. The capture and destruction of infrastructure connecting Normandy with the rest of France in the weeks before and on D-Day itself gave the Anglo-American force much needed time to establish their beachhead and offensive capabilities. These paratroopers came up huge once again in an important way, providing most of the early opportunities and success for the overall invasion force. By June 23rd, Cherbourg had been captured by American troops of the 1st Army, setting the stage for the introduction of more resources and supplies needed to start the breakout of the Normandy Bocage and into open country. Although the port's facilities and vessels were destroyed in the Germans' haste, the vulnerable mulberry barges could finally be replaced from weather and military threats, only hindering the supplying ability for another week. The conflict in the Bocage proved tough for the Allies, limiting their superior forces and weaponry as Germans were staying hidden throughout the hedgerows throughout the region. For example, Ernie Pyle, a famous war correspondent who saw firsthand the defense of the Bocage, stated, The fields were surrounded on all sides by the immense hedgerows, ancient earthen banks, waist-tight and all matters matted with roots and out of which grew weeds, brush, bushes and trees up to 20 feet high. The Germans used these barriers well. They put snipers in the trees. They dug deep trenches behind the hedgerows and covered them with timber so that it was almost impossible for artillery to get at them. The Germans utilized their surroundings to the best of their ability, holding up the huge Allied breakout attempt with their expertise and know-how of fighting effectively in the region. It would take the Allies weeks for them to finally break out. Meanwhile, British and Canadian forces materialized on the eastern end of the Normandy beachhead at Caen, 
on June 8th and began efforts to knock aside the reinforced Germans there. In both operations Epsom and Goodwood, the British-Canadian 2nd Army failed to dislodge powerful German tank elements of Panzer Group West, receiving massive casualties for little gain. However, the 2nd Army did engage with the vast majority of the German Panzer forces within northern France, drawing enough of the enemy away to leave the Brittany region weakly defended for the American forces. As a result, the 1st Army was able to launch Operation Cobra on July 25th, capturing St. Lo and beginning the breakout into central France, an open territory where the more numerous and superior Allied forces had a better advantage. With the Americans out in the open reaches of France, the German defenders at Caen had to give up the town and flee Normandy before being surrounded by the forces coming in from behind. Hitler made this, made this decision too late, however, causing the vast majority of his forces to be surrounded at Falaise. The German 5th Panzer and 7th Armies could have been wiped out there once and for all, but late British and Canadian reactions led about 240,000 troops fight another day behind the formidable Maginot Line in eastern France. The German retreat also left Paris open to be liberated, done so by the newly sent U.S. 3rd Army and its French motorized forces in specific on August 26th. The Allies had smooth sailing across almost the rest of France with the introduction of two more armies, the U.S. 12th and British 21st, in Normandy along with the 7th and Southern France in Operation Dragoon. However, the German resistance is only going to increase, leading to a stalemate across the Low Countries and Eastern Fr Eastern France by the beginning of September. The advance deep into France put the Allied forces in a great position to strike at the heart of Germany in the months to come, but overextended lines and fierce German resistance slowed the offensive down. In southern France, a new front is going to open up that will test the already weakened German forces further, forcing them to leave the region and move north to join the rest of the retreating army. As the Anglo-American forces in Normandy were starting to break out into open French territory, an army from Italy was preparing to touch down in southern France and push their way north. General Eisenhower, optimistic that Germany could be defeated by Christmas 1944, was willing to take some more troops out of the less important Italy to successfully meet his goal in whatever way possible. Since there was the sizable Army Group G consisting of 11 infantry and 4 panzer divisions defending the region, the Anglo-American High Command wanted to draw those forces away from the main fighting in northern France to sustain the target goal. Operation Dragoon was born as a result, incorporating both American and French tanks and troops from Italy in an effort to add more firepower to the six armies already fighting in northern France. Sixth Army Group, with the U.S. 7th Army and French Army B, were to occupy the nearby islands in the Mediterranean first so that artillery batteries and locations could be established to support the main landings. In addition, these landings would provide more resources for the fast-moving Allied forces in northern France pushing against the German border, providing much-needed aid. Samuel Elliott Morrison, a historian who participated in the landings of Operation Dragoon, recalls, Thus over the shoulders of a smiling couple in bathing suits, taking the sun on the Le de Portens, one observes a pier suitable for t typing up, tying up P.T. boats. The man who snapped manacely standing on the ramparts of an, of an old fort in eventually chase a background which helped an intelligence officer to make a 
panoramic sketch of the parts of a coast. A bather standing waist deep in the waters of the Bay de <laughs> Bulagon tells us that an LST may beach their dry ramp. Showing the benefits that these landings have in bringing resources and supplies to the front, Morrison wants his audience to see the desperate situation and purpose of these landings in southern France in the first place, to support the main attack. The elite Allied commandos famous from the Italian Salerno landings were charged with this important task, receiving naval support from part of Task Force 88 escorting the operation. Not expecting a large invasion force to suddenly appear, the Germans defending these islands were surprised and easily pushed aside on August 14th, the first day of the attack. These islands being occupied relatively quickly allowed the amphibious force landing on the Toulon coast to start their invasion on time and not have the Germans firing at their backs. If the Germans had the opportunity, they would definitely do so, putting the invasion forces into danger of being overloaded and destroyed from all sides. On August 15th, Operation Dragoon started in full force with the 7th Army and French Army B landing at beaches codenamed Alpha, Delta, and Camel, quickly gaining an early beachhead. Behind enemy lines, elements of the French resistance came up huge once again just like in Normandy, destroying communication and transportation lines that the Germans could have used to successfully counterattack the vulnerable invasion forces. A large counterattack once again could have shattered the invasion forces in a similar manner that almost happened at Anzio giving much-needed confidence to the German Army Group B, or G, already weakened by the loss of its more powerful units. Most of these beachline defenders were convicts from captured territory across Europe, surrendering immediately as a result of their motives to see the end of the Nazi regime. By August 17th, the American-French 6th Army Group were on the move to pursue the retreating Army Group G, who heeded Hitler's orders to reinforce the northern forces struggling to survive the Allied onslaught there. Lyon was captured on September 3rd, gaining more methods of communication and transportation due to the Germans not destroying any of these networks in their haste north. Soon after that, the 6th Army Group linked up with Patton's 3rd Army and took their positions on the southern part of the attack facing the Maginot Line, joining the stalemate befalling these troops along with the retreating Army Group G. Occupying large sections of southern and central France and their attack north, the 6th Army Group successfully eliminated the large German presence in the region. These American-French troops adding their strength to the overall Allied offensive in France was a big help, but it wasn't enough to break the stalemate. However, General Montgomery had a daring plan that he was confident would work, possibly being a game-changer that could end the stalemate on the Western Front. Soon after, the American-French 6th Army Group arrived to take their positions facing the Maginot Line in early September 1944, General Montgomery was putting the final touches on his plan to break the stalemate and open up Germany to conquest. Filled with the illusion of crossing the Rhine River fast while ending the war on Christmas like Eisenhower, Montgomery hoped that his codename Operation Market Garden would be the answer to his problems. According to General Eisenhower, a plan like Montgomery's wouldn't work as a result of the Allied forces being overextended and dangerously low on supplies, stating, We, Angle. Anglo-American force have advanced so rapidly that further movement in large parts of the front, even against weak opposition, is almost impossible. The risk for an attack at the caliber of Montgomery's would be dangerous and foolish, 
risking large parts of the Anglo-American force being defeated for no reason due to aggressive behavior. Daring as, the, as a result of the desire to drop huge numbers of paratroopers behind enemy lines in conjunction with a coordinated ground attack across the entire front, Operation Market Garden was planned to be the largest of its kind in the history of warfare. Paratroopers from the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne, along with the British 1st Airborne Divisions, participated in Operation Market Garden, charged with taking vital roadways and bridges linking the Netherlands and Belgium with the Allied forces positioned along the Western Front. In the Netherlands, the U.S. 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions were charged with taking the bridges in, at Eindhoven and Nimegen, vital locations crossing the Dutch canal systems utilized by the Germans. In northern Germany, the British 1st Airborne Division was required to take bridges over the Rhine at Arnhem, a heavily fortified spot that hosted elite panzer units of the famed SS. This proved to be a disastrous mistake causing these paratroopers to suffer mightily before surrendering and being hauled away as POWs. On the ground, tank forces of the British 2nd and American 12th Armies were to force their way through powerful German defenses and link up with the stranded paratroopers behind enemy lines. Bold and not likely to succeed, these armor attacks were too much to ask for out of the weakened forces overextended and lacking in necessary resources to fight effectively. On September 17, 1944, the first waves of paratroopers arrived over the front, landing across the Netherlands and northern Germany near the front in small groups not effective enough to engage the enemy. The first major mistake was made off the bat of not dropping all of the paratroopers set to participate in the offensive at once, not bringing enough troops to bear against established German positions. The later waves suffered from this, not gaining the element of surprise that the first waves experienced on the first day of the battle. As a result, the forces at Arnhem faced a lot of early unnecessary challenges that hindered the British ability to succeed early on. Simultaneously, American and British tank forces threw themselves head-on head at the German positions, making little headway against fierce resistance. By September 19th, the American paratroopers and British tanks linked up at their rendezvous position, but the British were still suffering mightily at Arnhem. Receiving more valuable SS reinforcements, these German defenders aggressively pinned back these British paratroopers, tightening their defensive ring into a hopeless spot. These reinforcements also denied the Anglo-American tank force from arriving on the scene, virtually ending all hopes for a successful link-up at Arnhem. By September 22nd, the fighting was all but finished, leading to a surrender by the trapped British paratroopers at Arnhem after they ran out of supplies and Germany's continued retainment of the Netherlands. Losing their chance to have a run towards Berlin and have the glory of capturing the capital, the Anglo-American force had to concede the ultimate prize to the Soviets and instead work on securing Western Germany. However, Hitler would throw a curveball that will change the course of the fighting on the Western Front and alter General Eisenhower's plans of attacking Germany proper. After seeing failure in Operation Market Garden, the Anglo-American forces facing the Maginot Line looked to gradually drain German troop strength giving some of their more involved units some rest before launching an, on an offensive in early February. It was planned that the Germans would just sit behind their positions and take advantage of the time given them to prepare heavier defensive lines within Germany proper. However, Hitler had other ideas, willing to commit the last of his valuable troop concentrations on the Western Front to a futile counterattack. Hitler's plan was to have the 5th and 6th Panzer Armies drive into the Ardennes Forest in a repeat of the successful attack on France in May 1940 and split the American and British troops situated next to each other 
within northeastern France and the Low Countries. Once these two nations' troops were separated from each other, these German tanks would swing north into Belgium and take, retake Antwerp, a vital, valuable port city that took the Allies months to capture and get operational so that supplies could be brought in. Following this devastating attack, Hitler hoped that the Anglo-American alliance would crumble and push them out of the war, leaving just the Soviets to engage. In the Ardennes Forest, inexperienced units of the U.S. First Army were holding the established line to temporarily replace the exhausted veterans fighting since D-Day back on June 6th. In no shape to have a chance against the remaining German veterans concealed before them, these green American troops were hopelessly not prepared for what was coming to them. Even worse, German SS officers disguised as American troops infiltrated Allied lines in the days before the upcoming offensive, changing road signs and giving false information to the Allied troops meant to defend the attack. These American troops became more confused and panicked as a result, further depleting their sanity and will to fight to the death if necessary to save their comrades' positions. On December 16, 1944, the Germans finally launched their anticipated counterattack from the Ardennes Forest quickly gaining ground as these confused green American troops ran in their wake. The attackers timed their invasion to perfection, not facing any aerial resistance due to the thick fog that settled over the battlefield. With their tanks protected from the moral, weak moral weaknesses from the time being, the 5th and 6th Panzer Armies raced to towards Bastogne by December 22nd, trapping the reinforcements of the 101st Airborne Division within the town. Hopelessly surrounded and outnumbered but unwilling to surrender, these paratroopers slowed down the main attacking forces for a few days until General Patton's 3rd Army tanks should arrive on December 29th. Among the paratroopers who were fighting for their lives against the German onslaught at Bastogne, Colonial, or Colonel Harriet Kinnard recalls. On the 22nd of December, when we 121st Airborne, we were totally surrounded. Some German officers under our white flag of truce, came into our glider arrangement with a paper demanding our, cement, our surrender and telling us all the bad things that would happen if we didn't. We went into General McAlphal, who went, who was talking a much-needed nap, and he mistakenly thought that this was some Germans who wanted to surrender to us. The fighting spirit of these paratroopers became legend when General McLaughlin's response to the surrender proposition was nuts, signifying that the Germans would have to utterly destroy the entire force to be able to move on. This allowed Patton's 3rd Army to arrive in time to save the day. By New Year's Day 1945, the initial shattered U.S. 1st Army was able to launch a counterattack of its own against overextended German forces out of fuel, slowly pushing the attackers back. British support in the north cut off some of the retreating Germans, but most got behind the Maginot Line once again on January 16th. Hitler made a big mistake of moving his forces out from behind their defenses, exposing some of his best units to destructive Allied resistance and eventual counterattacks. Weakened enough, these German forces couldn't hold off the superior Anglo-American armies from behind the Maginot Line for much longer, causing them to adopt the Rhine as the next defensive region. In the wake of their recovery and victory in the so-called Battle of the Bulge, the Anglo-American force was finally ready to launch attacks into Germany and across the Rhine for the first time. Hoping to capture the Rhine River region and its major cities like Cologne, proposed Operation Lumberjack would bring the Allies that much closer to success and salvation in Germany's defeat.
American and British forces along the entire Western Front were planned to be implemented in this attack, incorporating units of all six armies facing the German frontier. If these Anglo-American units could move fast enough, the severely weakened and exposed German forces could be captured before successfully making it across the river, virtually ending any type of fierce resistance or obstacles to the conquest of Berlin. The glory of capturing the capital was too much for both the Western Allies and the Soviets, motivating both sides to end the war as quickly as possible on their dominant terms. On the German side, the remnants of the 5th and 6th Panzer Armies along with the newly conscripted 7th Army were attempting to protect the approaches to their home nation. Willing to do anything possible to, to deny these Allied attackers the opportunity to breach the Rhine and have an unfettered offensive eastward, these German units were to put up heavy resistance to protect their homeland. On March 1, 1945, the Allied offensive began with a bang immediately pushing against the rapidly retreating German forces all the way to the banks of the Rhine. Especially threatening were the U.S. 1st and 3rd Armies, who successfully surrounded Cologne and reached the Rhine before the British did. As a result, on March 7th, the surprised Germans charged with destroying the railway bridge at Remagen after everybody crossed the river weren't able to complete the job in a rushed state, causing major structural damage but not destruction. Elements of the 3rd Army were able to cross safely, opening up the German interior to a quick conquest as a result of, the, of a lack of coordinated German resistance. More importantly, the Third Army got all the glory of being the first Anglo-American force to cross the famed Rhine, beating the British in a friendly rivalry to prove the superiority of the American forces in general. Yank correspondent Ed Cunningham, a witness to the miracle that happened at Remagen, states, the Ludendorff Bridge, overshadowed for 27 years by its more important sister spans across the Rhine, has had won its place in history. For 10 days, in the Ludendorff Bridge ba based its glory as the world's most, most important bridge. It was a high prior priority object now. American troops and tanks rolled across it to enlarge the bridgehead. German air artillery, realizing its importance, attacked it daily. Even though the Germans really tried their best to hamper the American crossing over the Rhine at Ramagen, they had no chance to stop the in inevitable once they had, they had finally crossed. The last obstacle had been cleared into Germany, and now the war will go as planned from then on. A few hours later, the British 2nd Army was able to cross the Rhine with artillery and air support farther north near the Belgian border overpowering weakened German forces intent on retreating after fighting for days on the riverbank, along with the knowledge of the American crossing. The rest of Western Germany, exposed to sweeping Allied attacks due to no more natural barriers being in the way, the war on the Western Front was coming to a close rather quickly. Since most of the remaining German troops were focused on protecting Berlin from even larger Soviet attacks, the fighting on the Eastern Front still had a long way to go before ending. Soviet troops are about to change the entire outlook of Eastern Europe for decades to come, altering the political landscape drastically. Hello everybody, Peyton here. Now I'm going to talk about the results that World War II had on the world and the future that comes about as a result of the Allied victory. After the defeat of the fascist powers of Germany, Italy, and Japan, the world was finally safe from despotic dictators bent on gaining world domination with the power of nationalism. The deaths of all these military and political leaders were, who supported this movement had to happen first, but the Allied powers were eventually victorious. Because of the fierce fighting that happened throughout Europe and the Pacific, many developed 
developed or developing nations were completely destroyed, losing all of their valuable infrastructure and ability to defend themselves. As a result, the Soviet Union and the United States both stepped up to the plate to help dictate the recovery of the world, having enough economic and political might to do so. A rivalry between these two nations would begin to develop, expanding throughout the world in the not-so-bloody Cold War, each nation having the power to wipe the opposition off the world over with their with their nuclear weapon arsenals, the combatants threaten to end all human life as we know it, all in the name of preventing the other from gaining too much gaining too much power. The world became divided between capitalism and communism, with each side not trusting each other. Only two hot wars actually occurred over the Cold War period between 1945 and 1990, the Korean and Vietnam Wars, but there wasn't any direct confront confrontation between the USSR and the U.S., once the Soviet Union fell in 1990, the pressure was finally off of the U.S., bringing more peace and stability back to the world. Let's get back to the Eastern Front and see how the Soviet forces were able to dominate their weak German opposition. Meanwhile, in Eastern Europe, the Soviets were on the move across the entire front, pushing south into the Balkans and Austria and north into East Prussia and Poland. Following their victory in the Battle of Kursk, the Soviet Union had millions of troops moving along the front against severely weakened German defenses and troop concentrations, seeking to take advantage of the change in fortunes. In three separate offensive, uh, offensives along the entire eastern front, one in the north, center, and south, the Soviet Union had 225 infantry and 22 armored divisions, vastly outnumbering the 50 infantry and 12 armored divisions of the Germans. As a result, the coming battle could be dramatically dictated by the Soviets, using their superior numbers and weaponry to bully their way through the established German defenses along the major rivers throughout the region. To successfully learn the art of warfare against the Cossack Soviet troops, they had to learn from established marksmen who knew what they were doing before participating in the offensive. According to Pyotr Pavlenko, a Soviet journalist for a local publication, The Cossacks, now, he, Trofim Alexandrovich, was invited to show young Cossacks the art of the uh, art of swordplay after he successfully dismembered 139 Germans. Upright on his horse, he galloped spiritly up to the clay figure of a German without spread arms. The young folks have ha have hacking away unsuccessfully at this German since early morning, but their swords have got stuck in the most moist clay at the level of the heart, or they have struck off only the head. Successfully sharpening their skills so that they would go into combat for the Soviet Union as soon as possible, these young Cossacks wanted to use what they learned to scare any German opposition into fleeing to escape the dismemberment that was coming to them. As early as the ending of the Battle of Kursk, these Soviet armies were on the move, aggressively seeking to exploit the serious German losses in tanks and aircraft sustained during the engagement. This probing offensive was so successful in the center that Soviet troops reached the Vistula and the Polish capital at Warsaw on July 31st, moving nearly 400 miles in less than a month. German troops, intent to just fall back in a controlled delaying action, became overwhelmed by the massive Soviet presence and unable to build effective defenses further back in time. However, per Hitler's orders, these weakened German forces still fought admirably, 
forcing the Soviets to pay in terms of heavy tank and troop losses. Because of this fierce resistance within small pockets of, of the defenders, the Soviets had to wait a few months before continuing their efforts of capturing Warsaw. Doing so after a rebellion among the local residents was brutally put down by vicious SS in early February 1945. In the north, the Soviets faced disjointed German resistance, facing lower numbers due to the defensive emphasis being in central Poland and the southern Europe slash the Balkans. The important Polish port of Lodz, along with the central German force itself, was beckoning to the Soviet troops, pushing their luck and glory hopefully into East Prussia after that. First, the Baltic states and their fierce German defenders had to be defeated, doing so in mi by mid-1944, mid-September 1944. Hitler, unwilling to give up more territory he believed could be saved, made a poor decision that cut his force on the Eastern Front by a quarter. This left the approaches to East, East Prussia open for the time being, finally closed at the start of January when the German defensive front shrank. In the South, these Soviet troops had the most success out of the entire operation. Following their conquest of Kiev and the rest of the Ukraine on December 22, 1943, this, Soviet's, this southern Soviet force consisting of three armies moved into Romania and Yugoslavia in their hunt for Austria and Hungary. If these two Axis nations were eliminated from the war, Germany wouldn't be able to receive the oil that it needs to continue powering the tanks vital to the defense. In early October 1944, after waiting nearly a year to regroup after recovering from their victory at Kiev in the Ukraine, finally, the Soviets finally started their offensive into Romania and Yugoslavia, capturing both Belgrade and Budapest quickly. Trapping whatever German troops were left fighting behind enemy lines in the Ukraine, this sweeping offensive successfully ended any real German threat to southern Europe for good. In response to this new threat on his southern flank, Hitler moved the 6th Panzer Army from Poland to Hungary in a futile effort to protect Budapest the capital of Hungary. From mid-January to February 1945, these German forces, reinforced with the 6th Panzer Army, besieged Budapest. In vain, these defenders were only able to delay the offensive in Austria and southern Germany, finally giving way on February 13th. With Germany finally opened up to a brutal attack on all sides, Berlin was looming as the next and final offensive on the Eastern Front. Soviet troops gave Stalin and the rest of the Communist Party so much power to dictate the affairs of Eastern Europe, but they still had some work to do. In more detail, I am going to talk about the Warsaw Uprising and how it affected Poland after World War II. As the Soviet offensive along the entire Eastern Front moved closer to Poland and Warsaw, the civilian population, tired of brutal and subjective German rule, saw a chance to dictate for themselves the fall of the capital and Western Poland in general. Suspicious of the motives of the Soviet Union after their occupation of their nation, these revolutionaries wanted to keep communist doctrine and control out of Poland and, re and return the government in exile back to power. Fear of what the Soviets would do to them after taking power in Poland pushed these revolutionaries over the edge. George Orwell, among the revolutionaries participating in the uprising against the Germans, states, Do remember that this... this Histony and cowardice always had to had to be paid for. Don't imagine that for years on end you could make yourself a bootlicking propagandist of the Soviet regime or any other regime, and then suddenly return to the mental decency. Once a whore, always a whore.
Seriously taking into account the possibilities of Soviet rule in Poland, Orwell wanted to participate in this uprising so that he can contribute in the effort to help Poland in the end. As the Soviets finally neared Warsaw after their year-long offensive across the Eastern Front, the revolutionaries saw the perfect opportunity to put their plan together and execute it against weak German troops. The revolutionaries got weapons and reinforcements from the Western Allies and other eager Poles, attempting to use the large urban setting to hide out and prepare for the perfect moment to strike when the time came. They would fight a guerrilla-style fight within the many hidden compartments of the city, hoping to drain the German defenders to the point where they wouldn't want to continue fighting. The Germans, then retreating from the scene, would be continually harassed and slowed, slowly whittled down by the Polish guerrillas all the way back to Germany, recapturing their lost territory with increased support from the local population. The Soviets would also be denied this important Polish territory all the way to, into Germany, stopping communist influence and power from tearing apart the government in exile. However, all this land had... All this had to happen on a tight schedule that revolved around the German weaknesses and no Soviet offensive, not happening in the end. On August 1st, 1944, the Warsaw Corps and its 50,000 revolutionaries began the so-called Warsaw Uprising, catching the weak German troops completely by surprise. Although these Germans had to concede most of the city early on by August 4th, reinforcements were on the way, seeking to turn the tide of the battle quickly. These reinforcements were from the famed SS police force, the most elite German troops out there, for a total of three panzer div divisions. The battle for control of the city shifted immediately, forcing the Warsaw Corps revolutionaries to fight in a tight defensive position in the face of heavy aerial, artillery, and tank bombardment. The hopes for a successful Polish takeover disappeared quickly as the SS troops gradually retook parts of the city tightening the screws until only a tiny sliver was still controlled by the Warsaw Corps. On October 2nd, the SS successfully put down the rebellion completely, either weeding out the remaining revolutionaries in the sewers or sending POWs to the remaining death camps within Germany. Throughout this episode, the Soviet troops in the area waited across the Vistula and let the battle play out, letting the Germans retake the city before moving in themselves. There was something sinister about this plan by the Soviets. They wanted to eliminate all of the pro-democratic forces not by their own hands so that communist control could be implemented. With no opposition left remaining in their quest to control Poland, the Soviets could maintain their control for decades to come without the fear of losing their power. Using Poland to instigate their attack on Berlin, the central Soviet offensive could finally fight for the biggest prize of all and end the war on their terms. After successfully capturing Warsaw and most of Eastern Europe by the start of 1945, the Soviet offensives could finally direct their attention to Eastern Germany and the biggest prize of all, Berlin. With all the focus and land needed to finally push through a war-ending attack, the Soviets had a perfect opportunity to gain a lot of power and influence over the coming negotiations. This position could give the Soviets an ultimate say regarding their proposed control of Eastern Europe and the good, a good chunk of Germany bullying around the weaker forces still remaining on the continent to get what they want at all costs. For the looming attack on the German capital, the Soviet Union massed 20 armies of nearly 3 million troops, 6,300 tanks, and 8,500 aircraft against the tottering Germans, an overwhelming force that could be deemed nearly invincible. As a result, Stalin and the other Soviet military leaders had a lot of room for error, allowing utter aggression and daring maneuvers to come out in an all-out effort to eliminate the Third Reich. Against the Soviet attackers were the German 10th and 11th armies, 
consisting of a largely large disparity between the SS veter veterans and the young, experienced Hitler youth. Forcing these children to fight for their leader, even though they were in no condition to do so, Hitler was extremely desperate to stop the Soviets so that he could retain power in Germany. To fight at the best of their abilities, the Hitler Youth troops were given grenade launchers and a couple of warheads to knock out as many Soviet tanks and troops as possible in a noble sacrifice. This delusion cost the Soviets hundreds of thousands of lives, but it wasn't really effective at pushing out the attackers in the end. On April 1, 1945, the three Soviet wings of the overall offensive began their assaults on Berlin, throwing themselves directly at the established German positions protecting the approaches on the Elbe River. Although facing huge casualties in terms of the number of men and tanks lost, the Soviets successfully outplanked the German static positions on the riverbank and forced a retreat into Berlin itself, beginning the next phase of the house-to-house -house fighting. The Germans were, Germans were completely overwhelmed because of the massive Soviet armies and resources being put up against them, having no chance to fight a successful defensive action. According to Dorothea von Schweichenfugel, a native Berlin resident who witnessed the fighting in her own city, the Soviets sat high upon their tanks with their rifles, cocked aiming at houses as they passed. The screaming, gun-wielding women here were the worst. Half of the troops had only rags and tatters around their feet, while others wore SS boots that had been looted from the conquered SS barrack in Lucerfade. In an, an imposing sight that would catch any victim off guard, the massive Soviet procession through Berlin not, not being extremely well opposed showed the state that the Third Reich was in during its last days. The Germans relied on a delaying action to sap the Soviets of their manpower and will to fight, not working out in the end. As Berlin was being cut off from the rest of what was left of Germany, Hitler was still willing to dictate the battle from the capital due to his confidence of leading a successful defense. Even though his delusion remained strong and unhampered, the Soviets completely surrounded Berlin on April 20th, all but trapping Hitler and the rest of his loyal followers for a final battle within the capital. The Soviets moved against the hidden German defenders gradually, forced to enter every single building and home in the city to root out the remaining opposition. They paid dearly in more men and resources, but Stalin had millions more reserves to throw into the battle if push comes to shove. On May 2nd, the Soviets declared Berlin in their control after nearly a month of fighting, witnessing the death of both Hitler and the, his promised Third Reich. Pillaging and continued looting of the city began soon after the battle, resulting in the rapes of thousands of German women and the virtual collapse of the city's economy and resources. Soon after Berlin was captured, the Nazi regime officially surrendered to the Allies, ending the war in Europe. Now, let's go to the Italian front of the war before the Nazi regime surrendered having some type of importance in drawing German forces away, but for nothing else in particular. While the preparations for the Normandy landings were getting underway in full swing, the Anglo-American force in Italy was stuck on the Gustav Line facing spirited German resistance. About equal in size, the attackers and defenders were in a prolonged stalemate, not having enough resources and strength to break through in some way. The weather in the lower Apennines Mountains was also had something to do with this stalemate, providing torrential rains to virtually swamp all of the dirt roads crossing the region. Lacking any type of air and tank cover during these constant torrential rains, the Anglo-American force struggled to find any type of advantage to finally break through the veteran German defenders. 
A solution introduced by the Allies was to launch an amphibious assault on the Italian coast north of the Gustav Line, having the ability to completely outmaneuver and destroy the German defenders. If these Germans were captured, the rest of the Italian peninsula could be open to conquest, threatening southern Germany and Austria. Either reinforcements would have to be diverted from more pressing locations or nothing gets sent at all, two options that Hitler couldn't afford in his efforts to turn the tide of the war back onto his side. For the coming Operation Shingle, Allied military leaders in Italy planned for the 6th Corps to land at Anzio with the naval fleet of Task Force 81 escorting the landing force. For Task Force 81, two submarines, four cruisers, 28 destroyers, and 103 minor vessels were part of the attack, charged with knocking out German defensive positions and eliminating any sort of coordinated resistance. Hoping to catch the Germans on the beach line by surprise, 6th Corps, if successful, would eliminate the German threat in Italy and end the campaign once and for all so that Austria and Germany could be directly attacked. In conjunction with the Anzio landings, the U.S. 5th Army would attack the Gustav Line on the western coast of Italy, bottling up the German defenders in that sector. If done successfully, these attacks would paralyze the German threat, leaving the North open for conquest. On January 20, 1944, the U.S. 5th Army launched a preemptive attack on the Gustav Line to gain the attention of the Germans, failing to, to successfully break through the initial positions as planned. As a result, the NZO landings were already set to struggle before they even got started, turning the effort into a struggle just to survive. On January 22, the Anzio landings finally started, initially meeting with little German resistance due to the surprise that came as planned. This conservative approach boded well at first. However, this gave the Germans some time to prepare a strong counterattack and turn the tide of the battle disastrously into their favor. As soon as they were ready to do so, the Germans launched their counterattack on February 7th after waiting for the 6th Corps to get hopelessly overextended, immediately pushing the invaders back to the beaches. Threatening to tear the 6th Corps apart, these German attacks made huge progress while being out of the range of the Task Force 81 warships. However, these forces weren't able to finish the job, creating a stalemate that lasted until May when the 5th Army finally arrived. Suffering mightily against the severe German resistance, the American troops of the 6th Corps des desperately needed to not get disappointed and maintain some sort of morale throughout the stalemate. An unknown GI stuck in the Anzio stalemate recalls, Jerry, the Germans, threw in a lot of artillery and mortars. The best thing to do was to pull in your head and pray. Some of the that B.I. stuff would cave in the side of a wet foxhole, and a couple of the boys got buried right off their hole 50 yards away from me. We had two or three casualties every day, most from, mostly from artillery and mortars. If you got in at night, you were lucky, because they could get you out right away. God help you if you got hit in the daytime. One experience out of many in the Anzio stalemate, these events were repeated among every individual stuck facing the Germans. Everybody that survived learned a valuable lesson about fighting in the Italian campaign, using this to their advantage once they reached the Gothic line. The Americans, in their haste to gain glory over their British counterparts by reaching Rome first, let the German attackers escape and fight another day. The campaign continued on at the Gothic line as a result, bringing another stalemate, this time in northern Italy. After finally breaking through the Gustav Line in May 1944 after more than six months of stalemate, 
the Anglo-American force looked towards the northern Italian frontier to finally break through and end the campaign. However, the lust of reaching Rome before their British counterparts got in the way of truly knocking out Kessel Ring's forces, allowing them to retreat north and create a new defensive line between La Spezza and Ravenna. The Gothic line was already started even before the Anglo-American force broke open the Gustav line, albeit at a slow pace due to a lack of direct threats. Once the Gustav line was broken, the construction was instantly accelerated as the thought of a direct attack loomed large within the next few weeks against inferior forces. If the Anglo-American force trapped and defeated most of the Kessel Ring's men and moved directly north to face the unprepared Gothic line, the major fighting of the campaign would have to be finished, would have been finished. But the attack on Rome allowed these ensnared German troops to escape before it was too late, giving the Gothic line engineers some more time as well to make even stronger and more sophisticated defensive positions. For the assault needed to break open the Gothic line and reach the open plains of the Po Valley, the U.S. 5th and British 8th Armies participated in the campaign, weakening in their state. The French offensives were just getting started further west, and the best Italian units were needed in the most important sector of the fighting on the Western Front. For example, the 8th Army fell from a high of 249,000 experienced battle-hardened men to 153,000 mostly new and experienced recruits, forced to adapt quickly to the fighting or face death and destruction. On the other side of the battle lines, the Germans had the 10th and 12th Armies sitting on the defensive line itself with another army in reserve to fill in the gaps, matching approximately equal in numbers with the Anglo-American force. Although they were weakened to a good extent due to their defeat and escape from the Gustav line, Kessel Ring's knowledge and expertise on the mountain fighting expected gave his troops some comfort and motivation to strike hard at the downtrodden Allied force. Another stalemate was planned, but the Germans wanted it on their terms this time. On August 23, 1944, the Anglo-American attack in Operation Olive began in earnest successfully catching the unprepared Germans by surprise as massive numbers of troops rushed the initial positions. Capturing the first defensive lines on the lower slopes of the Apennines rather quickly, the Allied military leaders in the Italian campaign believed that the Germans might collapse and retreat further north, saving precious time. However, German reserves were sent to oppose the main attack by the 8th Army along the Adriatic Sea coast, limiting their expansion to introduce a stalemate there. Unaware of this failure by the 8th Army, the 5th Army launched its planned attack on the western side of the Gothic line, facing heavy resistance. Able to slog forward due to a tank escort numbering 1,200 tanks, the 5th Army reached San Marino, capturing the area on September 20th. Meanwhile, another assault on the line was launched on September 10th near Bologna in the hopes of tearing the Gothic line apart. However, more minor gains were made, dragging out the campaign until October 23rd. An unknown American soldier from the 5th Army, who sacrificed a lot in this phase of the campaign, states, Our company was almost undermined. 27 short of the more than 200 that should have been on hand. I told my guys, no, no talking when we go up that hill. Hand signals only. I felt a rush of hope. Today we're doing, going to do it, I added. My men nodded. The hill was heavily mined. We went up it so fast, we outran our artillery. We had to keep running so we didn't get annihilated by our own fire. We got to the top in two hours. As he continued his attack up the hill, 
The soldier got hit by multiple German snipers and fell wounded, suffering while continuing to lead his men. Heroics like this were demonstrated throughout the front, with this only being one example of many. However, this was done in vain. Only a few miles away from the Po Valley when the first rains came, the Anglo-American attack was stalled and eventually stopped, frustrating everyone on the front lines. It was not until spring that the Gothic line was broken and the Italian campaign was over. Although not meeting any initial successes within Operation Olive, German forces that could have been used in the French campaign were held in the Italian mountains, giving the main offensive a better advantage that they were able to exploit. With the European war now over, let's go to the Pacific Theater once again and witness the challenges of knocking out the Japanese forces once and, all, once and for all there. As the Anglo-American invasion force in France moved ever so closer to the German border, Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur prepared to combine powerful army and navy forces for the long-awaited attack on the Philippines. Ever since the Japanese captured the entire archipelago in early May 1942, MacArthur wanted to personally lead an invasion force to retake this lost territory and fulfill his promise of finally returning. MacArthur believed that without him returning to remove the hated Japanese from the islands, the United States shouldn't have the opportunity to end the war and free the Filipinos from brutal bondage. However, there were some strategic motives for retaking the Philippines, including to cut off the Japanese oil and natural resource reserves in the conquered Dutch East Indies and provide us, the U.S., with harbors to host the Navy with much-needed refueling and supply stations. If the Japanese lost access to their vital reserves of natural resources, their already depleted Imperial Army and Navy wouldn't be able to have the chance to get resupplied for their long Hall fight against the superior American forces. Restricting their ability to maintain a defensive posture in general, the Japanese Empire would cease to exist without these resources, showing how important it actually was for their very survival. For the Philippines operation, the island of Leyte and the surrounding waters of Leyte Gulf were chosen by the Americans, providing a valuable sanctuary and protection against the sure-to-come aggressive Japanese counterattack. On the American side of the battle, there were five fleet and five light carriers, six battleships, eight cruisers, and 41 destroyers, a much larger and more sophisticated force in size compared to the Japanese. These vessels are split up into the powerful 3rd and 7th fleets, combining the best forces that the United States had in the Pacific at that time. The Japanese had one fleet, three light, and two hybrid carriers, with little to no aircraft on them, two battleships, five destroyers, four destroyer escorts, and three cruisers with other small vessels. Split up into three groups, the Japanese fleet was hoping to surprise and destroy parts of the weaker 7th Fleet to help turn the tide of the war. In the northern decoy force, the Japanese were hoping to use their alluring carriers to draw the 3rd Fleet away from Leyte Gulf from the knockout punch by the central and southern forces. If successful, the Japanese would be able to directly threaten and destroy the American landing force fighting it out on Leyte, eliminating any chance of them losing the Philippines. On October 20, 1944, the invasion of Leyte began in earnest, landing most of the troops and supplies needed to keep the attack going for a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, the Japanese force spread out in Singapore and in the home islands prepared their counterattack and got into position on October 24th, waiting for the decoy carrier force to do its job. By late evening, the 3rd Fleet bit the bait and started to move out of the waters surrounding Leyte. Doing its job to absolute perfection, the northern decoy force got the battle off to a good start for the Japanese. 
losing all of their carriers in the ensuing engagement for the next few days. Right on cue, the southern force moved towards the San Bernardino Strait and into the path of the submarines Darter and Dace, who alerted some local battleships and other small vessels to engage the threat. As a result, the southern force got attacked out of nowhere, catching the central one in its tracks as well as it, mo as well as it moved into the strait. Completely in disarray, both forces retreated, but the central force turned around and continued steaming into Leyte off unnoticed. William Hazley, thinking that this force turned around in their haste, called off the airstrikes and moved towards the northern decoy force. He recalls, Our planes hit the central force again and again through the day and reported sinking the battleships Mushi, Japan's newest and largest, three more cruisers and a destroyer, and inflicting several damage, severe damage on many other units. These seemed to mill around armlessly, then withdrew to the west, then turned east again, as if they had suddenly received a do-or-die command from Hisharu himself. Confident in the destruction that he wrought on the Japanese, Halesley left the weak 7th fleet overexposed and put the entire operation in danger of failing altogether. In the morning, all that was left protecting the invasion force was from all the battleships and cruisers in the Leyte Gulf were the escort carriers and destroyers of Taffy 3, a token force so suited to provide invasion escorts. Desperately trying some evading actions and warning calls to the 3rd Fleet to help protect them, Taffy 3 was on the verge of destruction against superior Japanese vessels. Hearing these warning calls come through their radio signals, the Japanese Central Force decided to turn back around and flee the area before it was too late, facing massive destruction by aerial attacks by the 3rd Fleet in their haste. A resounding victory for the Americans that came extremely close to a crushing defeat, the Battle of Leyte Gulf officially opened up the Philippines to conquest. As a result, the war in the Pacific is that much closer to ending, but there is still a lot of work to do for the Americans to witness this reality. After their victory in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the Americans were now looking closer to Japan to bring the war into enemy waters as soon as possible so that the defenders didn't have as much time to prepare an effective delaying action. At first, Admiral Nimitz wanted to attack Taiwan just north of the Philippines to knock out the major Japanese force there and secure the sea lanes into China. However, some of the American naval leaders were opposed to such a large attack far away from Japanese soil leaving the ground forces still exposed to possible entrenched positions. Since Taiwan was such a big island compared to the islets and atolls that the Americans had been attacking along with the increased Japanese resistance as the campaign had dragged on, the island was ruled out after much dispute. Instead, Nimitz's campaign, Nimitz's second option in Iwo Jima was accepted by the majority of the American naval leaders, possessing three valuable airfields hosting menacing Japanese aircraft. The B-29s, American aircraft that did most of the bombing above the home islands, would face heavy resistance from enemy aircraft and anti-aircraft batteries every time they flew over Iwo Jima on their bombing missions. Suffering more losses there than over the home islands themselves, the B-29 bombing force desperately needed something done about Iwo Jima as soon as possible so that more bombers could be saved. In addition, the B-29 crews also wanted access to the Iwo Jima airfields so that damaged aircraft returning from the home islands could have a place to land at and survive. This motive would also save more pilots so that they could fight for another day over Japanese airspace, proving all the more critical for the island to be captured. 
For the offensive at Iwo Jima, the Americans landed at the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions with the 3rd and 5th Fleets providing offshore escorts, a huge force of 70,000 troops that hadn't been seen much throughout the Pacific War on small islands. These Americans sought to completely envelop and destroy the holdup Japanese defenders as quickly as possible, seeing their end goal come so close. If the attack was completed relatively quickly, the next target could be assaulted sooner, ending the war sooner as a result. To oppose the American Marines was the 21,000-strong Japanese 15th Division under the competent general command of General Kiribashi, who advocated for his forces to hide out in caves dotted all over the island and not fire until the Americans approached. A policy of killing 10 Americans for every Japanese lost, this strategy hoped to prolong the war while doing massive damage to the American morale, who still had the home island campaign to launch as of that point. On February 19, 1945, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Marine Divisions landed at beaches codenamed Green, Red 1, Red 2, Yellow 1, Yellow 2, Blue 1, and Blue 2, initially meeting surprisingly little resistance. Hopeful that the campaign would end sooner than expected, the American Marines quickly created a solid beachhead and moved out towards the waiting Japanese in their caves. However, the Japanese resistance at Blue 2 was a notable exception, coming in fierce and strong from the wilderness region of the island. A group of Marine Corps war correspondents, per participants in the fight in the wilderness, states, When the 24th Raymond 2nd Battalion re re reached the wilderness, they spent four days on the line with no re respite, from the song of death sung by mourners among these desolate and gouged shellholes. The wilderness covered about a square mile inland from Beach Blue Beach two on the approaches to airfield number two, and there was no cover. Here stood a blast dwarf tree, there a stubbly rock ledge in a maze of volcanic crevices. An imposing landscape that would prove tough for any attackers, the wilderness was definitely used by the Japanese to their utmost advantage, showing the first signs of the American struggle on the campaign. Once they were reached in other sectors of the island, the Japanese launched withering artillery fire from their hidden positions, sending the Marines scrambling from cover and resources to knock them out of their caves. Slowly pushing their way through the heavily fortified Japanese positions, the Marines struggled for weeks to dislodge to every defender in sight to end the campaign. Finally, doing so on March 16th, the Marines had to witness the death of almost all of the 21,000 defenders along with large numbers of the local population and General Kiribashi himself. Meanwhile, off the coast of Iwo Jima, kamikaze attacks destroyed individual vessels of the overall American fleet at whim, suffering thousands of deaths to these suicide pilots. The climax of these assaults haven't come yet, but the Japanese will continue to throw everything they have in vain against the Americans. The next attack target is Onkiawa, and the campaign will be even tougher than the one completed at Iwo Jima. Following the Battle of Iwo Jima, the island of Onkiawa was deemed the next target of the campaign to get ever closer to Japan, possessing valuable assets that drew the Americans in. Positioned only 350 miles south of the Japanese main island of Kyushu, Onkiawa was an important outpost deemed necessary for capture by Admiral Nimitz due to his close proximity to the home islands. For the first series of Japanese landings set to occur later in 1945, the island's airfields, harbors, and other facilities would be important locations for hosting the Amer American invasion force. 
The American amphibious and naval forces would have to travel extremely far to get to Kirishu from Okinawa, adding to the in the element of surprise to their hopefully crushing attack. However, the heavily defended island needed to be captured first, proving to be a long, daunting campaign outlined as a preview for what was to come for the main campaign to capture the home islands. For the coming operation of epic proportions, the U.S. 10th Army and its 75,000 troops were charged with launching the amphibious assault on Nakiawa, supported by the massive state-of-the-art Task Force 58. A massive force that was deemed necessary to conquer the island, the 10th Army included some of the most well-trained Army forces fighting in the Pacific. As a result, Admiral Nimitz and the rest of the American naval staff hoped that the Onkiawa campaign would be a short affair where as many troops as possible could be saved up to start the Kirishu landings by the end of the year. To oppose this American force, the Japanese had 100,000 troops mostly concentrated in the southern part of the island, along with thousands of civilians forced into combat as the battle dragged on. Although having more defenders than the Americans had in attackers, a lack of proper training, supplies, and weaponry set this force up for failure against the superior American technology. The Japanese leaders on Akiawa forced their troops to concentrate their strength on the, in the fabled Shuri Line as a result, trying to make up for their deficiencies in arms and, and experience. In addition, suicide pilots in both the newly created Baka guided missile and kamikaze aircraft were set to engage with the huge American fleet in full force, hoping to discourage opposing sailors with the loss of some capital ships. These attacks would go on for the entire battle with some effectiveness and success, but they would be no match for the massive fleet opposing them. On April 1, 1945, the landings of the U.S. 10th Army officially started on the eastern coast of Makiawa, facing no major resistance early on from the few defenders in the area. Quickly creating a decent beachhead and moving north, these army troops brushed aside the little Japanese resistance there and secured the airfields and installations left behind. These American troops started becoming more and more confident about the lack of a strong Japanese presence as the rest of the north was being quickly secured. Operation Iceberg was going extremely well until leading units reached the defensive positions of the Shuri Line, bringing the real battle and destruction to fruition. For example, once the army troops reached the Shuri line, the main obstacle for of Sugarloaf Hill posed direct challenges to the attackers. According to Raymond Sawyer, a war correspondent with, with the troops on the Shuri line, stated, With Sherman tanks on our side, our attack company, our unit pushed within 1,000 yards of Sugarloaf and the heavy fire from 47mm guns, well concealed in caves, battered our advance. The battle for Sugarloaf Hill took place from May 13th to May 17th. During those four days, we reached the top of Sugarloaf 13 times, only to be driven back by Japanese countertalks 12 times. Held up by this defensive line for months, these American troops struggled to break through and secure the rest of the island. Their confidence rapidly diminished. These army troops struggled to find the motivation to continue fighting the hidden enemy. The Japanese plan worked to complete perfection. However, the superior training and technology of the Americans finally caught up with them, ending the battle on June 21st. From April 22nd to June 21st, these Japanese defenders successfully hampered the American ability to use their overwhelming firepower and superiority on them, gaining valuable lessons for the defense of their homeland. Meanwhile, the final elements of the Japanese surface fleet, including the super battleship Yamoto, launched its suicidal final attacks on April 6th and 7th. 
getting completely wiped out by the complete American air superiority. A last hurrah, so to speak. These suicidal attacks had no chance of succeeding. As a result of their American victory, the major army and naval leaders could successfully prepare for their final attack on the Japanese home islands and end the war once and for all. However, the new president of the Japanese defensive strategy scared every American military leader and politician, including President Truman, who had an alternative at his disposal. After the capture of the Marianas in early August 1944, the bombing campaign in the Pacific could finally be brought to Japanese soil with the new state-of-the-art B-29 Flying Fortress bombers. Revolutionary in terms of the massive range and pressurized cabin possessed within the aircraft, the B-29 provided the comfort and range necessary to force the Japanese out of the war with bombing alone. The capture of the Marianas was deemed significant by the Japanese Admiralty for this reason. Transitioning, transitioning the conflict from a mostly faraway adventure to a more local and massively destructive one. American military leaders who commanded the Pacific War were hoping that the introduction of these B-29s would help end the war once and for all, saving them from having to organize invasion plans and send thousands of troops to die in the field. If required to commence, these Japanese landings would have dramatically discouraged the American public and urged them to submit to the willful defenders who wanted this to happen. The Japanese Empire would be saved and continue to be a threat for the years to come if it is able to survive. Starting in January 1945, the B-29 exclusive 21st Bomber Command took part in bombing raids on the Japanese home islands from the Marianas, beginning a period of hope and excitement for what was to come in the campaign. However, these early bombing raids met with little to no success, dropping a total of only 1,500 tons of bombs in the first month of the operation. Not adequate enough to see the gradual strangulation and eventual fall of the Japanese Empire, these bombing raids didn't directly threaten the cities and factories providing the weaponry to keep the Imperial Army and Navy going. The jet streams thousands of feet above Japanese soil was the main reason for this failure, pushing the attackers so strongly that they couldn't properly drop their bombs. John Jennings, a pilot of one of these B-29s, recalls, Over Japan. At 30,000 feet, the winds were from 150 to 200 miles per hour. If you were so coming onto the wind, you were probably 30, 40, 50 miles an hour over the target. You were over the target so long that they could shoot the heck out of you. All right, so we could turn out and come downwind. That was the answer. No, now you're going over 300 miles an hour sometimes up to 500 miles per hour, and the Norden bomb site could figure out where when they dropped those things. These strong jet streams above Japan proved extremely tough for these pilots participating in air raids, either slowing them down or speeding them up so much to make them not effective. Something new had to be made up and fast to solve this problem. A new commander had to come in with a whole new strategy to bring some success to the B-29 bomber force. That leader was General Curtis Lee May, the bombing pioneer of the European War, and his strategy was night fire bombing raids. Flying at a low altitude of 5,000 feet without any guns and other defensive weaponry to protect themselves, except for the one in the tail area, these B-29s would maximize their load with as many bundles of firebombs as possible to destroy entire sections of Japanese wood cities. At first, there was a huge backlash among the pilots and their crews regarding their safety. 
especially around enemy aircraft and anti-aircraft batteries. However, early bombing results and successes convinced them otherwise, showing that the Japanese air fleet and their corresponding anti-aircraft batteries couldn't respond to this change in tactics. These defenses were never able to fully recover, giving the B-29s free yet free reign to bomb the Japanese at will on the ground for the rest of the war. One glaring example of the successes these B-29 pilots had was the firebombing of Tokyo for a week straight in early March 1945. Large swaths of the city were burned to the ground, destroying the city's major industries and killing thousands of civilians caught in the crossfire. Even events like this didn't encourage the Japanese to surrender. However, President Truman and his military leaders had a new superweapon that was sure to bring the Japanese to their knees and end the war once and for all. Hello, hello everybody. Peyton here once again. Let's review what's been happening in this episode so far as it's been extremely long and complex. After successfully landing on the Normandy shores on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Anglo-American 1st and 2nd Armies struggled initially to break out into the open French interior as a result of the fierce resistance of the German defenders and their utilization of the local surroundings. It took an overwhelming landing force paired up with complete air superiority to finally root out the Germans and move into the interior, occupying Paris on August 26th. In southern France, Operation Anvil slash Dragoon got started, bringing more forces and much-needed supplies into France to reinforce the already overextended northern force. Quickly mopping up any kind of uncoordinated German resistance, these forces easily made it into northern France within a month of their landing, joining up with the forces facing the Maginot Line. General Montgomery, hatching up a plan to finally break through these defenses, launches the daring Operation Market Garden to break the line. Failing, failing to use the paratrooper force at his disposal in an effective manner, Montgomery made his offensive too complicated, causing it to fail within two weeks. Hitler decided to launch a counterattack to destroy the Anglo-American forces in front of him on the Western Front as a result of this failure, leading to his defeat in the Battle of the Bulge. However, Hitler created enough panic and resolve among these Allied forces, causing them to finally break through these border defenses along the Rhine and move unhampered through Germany for the rest of the war. The Italian campaign was going about the same for the Anglo-American force, hitting the same obstacles as the Allies did on the Western Front. Slow and steady attacks finally broke the German resistance. However, this took years to finally get going at full potential. On the Eastern Front, the Soviets were having a much easier time against the weak German opposition, having the overwhelming firepower to quickly push the Germans back throughout the whole front. The only obstacles to their success were the huge logistical problems posed by the remoteness of the Eastern Front, slowing down their communication and transportation networks temporarily. They also lost a lot of troops, but it was mostly because of their aggressive strategies and just using their overwhelming numbers against the Germans. In the Pacific, the Americans steadily pushed harder against the Japanese, however, not without a response. In the battles of Leyte Gulf, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa, the Japanese launched daring counterattacks at sea that temporarily slowed down the Americans. Even though they were brushed aside in the end, these attacks by the Japanese put fear into the minds of the troops who had to possibly land on the home islands for the main invasion of the Pacific War. However, the Soviet invasion of Manchuria and the detonations of the atomic bombs, as we will get into now, changed those circumstances. As the fall of 1945 approached, the B-29 bombing raids over the Marianas 
were still in full swing on the Japanese home islands. However, the Imperial High Command was still unwilling to surrender, completely destroying the Japanese economy and all of its cities through all of their firebombing raids. The B-29 still hadn't forced the Japanese to surrender as planned. As a result, these preparations for the long-awaited invasion of the home islands came fully underway, showing that the Japanese people and culture might have to be completely eliminated to bring surrender. A daunting prospect that filled President Truman and his military leaders with fear for the lives of thousands of American soldiers. The looming Japanese invasion needed to be avoided at all costs. If, if a solution wasn't found to the problem of the Japanese surrender, the American people could dramatically turn against the hard work done throughout the war and urge an armistice, sparing the enemy from complete destruction. This was exactly what the Japanese were hoping for and they were willing to hold out for as long as possible to reach this goal at all costs. President Truman proposed the usage of atomic weapons from the Manhattan Project, a bold maneuver that will set a new president in the history of warfare. To be able to even have the safety and security needed to have the atomic bombs be brought into Japanese airspace, the fabled B-29 needed to be the mo mode of transport from the safety of the Marianas. If the aircraft carrying the bomb was either intercepted by an enemy aircraft or anti-aircraft battery, the danger of the bombing raid would become even more pronounced and deadly. The B-29 carrying the bomb would either have to randomly drop it or continue moving towards the target before it became too late, options that were not ideal for the United States at that point in the war. The first target that was chosen was Hiroshima, a port city metropolis in southern Kyushu that hosted army and naval forces on a daily basis. Deemed acceptable as a result of the city being a military target, Hiroshima was planned to be attacked on August 6, 1945 with the uranium Little Boy bomb. When that day came, the flight to the home islands was uneventful, having the perfect weather conditions necessary to drop the bomb successfully. Once the bomb was dropped, the destruction became apparent, instantly destroying five square miles of the city while killing nearly 100,000 people over time. Dr. Hayachiya, a doctor living in Hiroshima on the day of the atomic detonation, recalls. The sky was filled with black smoke and glowing sparks. Flames rose and heat set, set currents of air in motion. Updrafts became so violent the sheets of zinc roofs were hurled aloft released and released, humming and twirling in erratic flight. Pieces of flaming wood soared like the fiery swallows, the Barula, Hiroshima Communications Barula, started to burn until the whole structure was converted into crackling, hissing inferno. Just one example of the glaring destruction that, that the Hiroshima detonation had on the city, the loss of the Communications Bureau in the Fury Way shows that the power of the bomb had been proven. On August 9th, the second atomic weapon, this time a plutonium bomb, on Nagasaki, was dropped with this without the same destructive effects. Dropped in the mountainous suburbs of the city, the bomb destroyed only two and a half square miles and killed a total of 60,000 people. However, this second detonation, along with the Soviet invasion of Manchuria, convinced the Japanese to finally surrender on August 15th and end the war in the Pacific. However, I'll finally talk about the Soviet invasion of Manchuria and show how this overwhelming attack finally convinced the Japanese Admiralty to give up. Finally, as the Americans were gearing up to drop the first atomic bomb in their arsenal at Hiroshima, the Soviets were prepared to make an attack into Japanese-occupied Manchuria. 
held ever since 1931 after their surprise invasion of the territory, Manchuria was brutally incorporated into the Japanese Empire, serving as a base to attack China and funnel the Asian natural resources to the home islands. Extremely successful, this Manchurian colony allowed the Japanese to gain an early advantage in the war against China and the United States across the Pacific. If Manchuria was lost before the Japanese officially surrendered, the humiliation brought forth would tear the people apart, especially the ones who urged their leadership to continue the war to the very end. The Soviets, after their successful campaigns in eastern Germany and eastern Europe in general, had to move all their forces east to the Manchurian frontier to be able to launch the attack, a move that took a lot of time and coordination among Soviet military leaders eager to get the attack going. Their goal was to declare war on the Japanese and utterly swarm Manchuria with about a million troops before the United States was able to bring their surrender in the Pacific, hoping to have a share of the pie at the sure-to-come negotiations. Stalin, who wanted this overwhelming three-pronged invasion to get going as soon as possible, urged his military leaders to move quickly in their migration and preparations, targeting August 6th as the day of the invasion. On the other hand, the Japanese troops defending Manchuria were at an extremely low number and preparation ability, having most of their comrades get transferred to the home islands to oppose the expected American invasion. In addition, because of the Japanese-Soviet non-aggression pact was signed in July 1941, the troops defending the frontier didn't expect Soviet troops to suddenly appear and attack them, believing that the signed agreement was enough to protect them. However, as in the European War when, where Hitler broke his non-aggression pact with the Soviets, Stalin was willing to do the same in Manchuria, fulfilling his best interests as they were laid out at the Potsdam Conference in July 1945. On August 6th, the Soviets declared war on the Japanese Empire and began their overwhelming three-pronged attack into Manchuria, surprising and destroying all of the unprepared Japanese troops protecting the border. Unfazed by the first atomic detonation at Hiroshima, the Soviet attackers quickly rushed across the poorly defended Manchurian frontier, meeting, most, meeting the most success in the West. With the aid of Mongolian herdsmen, Soviet troops reached the region of Swifainye almost immediately after the invasion started, cutting the Japanese forces concentrated at Halar in two. These defenders of Halar were also brutally beaten back by the second arm of the Soviet attack in the center, completely overwhelming and forcing a long retreat. The situation for the, for the Japanese was getting so urgent that the Admiralty finally agreed to a surrender on August 15th, not stopping the Soviets from occupying the rest of the territory. Contributing to the quick change of heart from Japanese leaders in terms of the surrender issue, this Soviet invasion forced the surrender so that they, so that they didn't get overwhelmed. With a strong communist presence in the region, a new war is about to start, changing the outlook of Asia forever. Overall, the German and Japanese forces that remained to fight the Allied attacks in mid-1944 only had a matter of time before being completely overwhelmed and forced to surrender. Piece by piece, the Allied armies throughout Europe and the Pacific were pushing back the staunch Axis defenders, in the end having to attack some of the, or all of their home territories to force an unconditional surrender. Although the Allies had overwhelming numbers of troops, tanks, and aircraft at their disposal due to the industrial prowess in the major nations of Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Difficulty and hardship still arose as a result of the German and Japanese wills to fight on to the death if necessary. 
These fierce fanatics had to be eliminated from their respective governments through their deaths for Germany and Japan to surrender, bringing an unnecessary amount of destruction throughout their home nations in the process. Although there was some intense collaboration among the Allied troops within both the European and Pacific Wars, a rivalry between the democratic and communist worlds is about to come into the picture, threatening to destroy the planet altogether with new nuclear weaponry.